So in 1995, 96, around that area, I was stationed on this 180-foot Coast Guard cutter out of Seattle, Washington, and um, we had cruised to San Diego, and we're there for a month doing some training stuff with the Navy. At that same time period, I was dating Corey, and so a month away, like in two different states, uh, that, that just seemed like forever. So the time had come for us to begin cruising north again, and uh, music to our ears, the captain came on the 1MC on the loudspeaker and said, uh, we are, we're making full speed for home. So that meant, that meant we we're going to be home in just like just under a week. It would, be, uh, it would be awesome. So we get underway from San Diego, and the weather is calm and beautiful. There's like, it's so picturesque. There's dolphins, I remember, surfing in the bow wake, and uh, pelicans fishing off the side. It was fantastic. We go to bed. We're up near um, uh, San Francisco the next day, and then this alarm goes off, and this guy on our crew had a seizure, and he had to be airlifted to, uh, to the hospital in the San Francisco Bay Area. So our ship makes this detour to go, uh, to go check on him, uh, and that Took a couple days out of, our, uh, out of our ETA to go home, but that was the right thing to do. So we get back underway, uh, now two or three days behind, ske- behind schedule, and uh, we go to bed. I knew that the next day, okay, we're back on track. We should be in Oregon by the next morning. And I got up at 3.30 in the morning to stand watch at 4, because that's what you have to do sometimes. And uh, I realized like, it's kind of difficult to put my boots on, like, oh, this is kind of rough out here. So I go up uh, above decks, and uh, it's like really getting rough. By noon that day, the seas were 45 feet uh, coming out of the west, and we had to then like go zigzag. We couldn't just go north because we couldn't get stuck in the trough. All of this stuff was preventing me from getting home to my love, and, uh, and two other semi-emergency things happened on the way, but I won't bore you. The point is, that the captain in San Diego said, we are going full speed for home. And, and when you're on a ship, like what the captain says is law. Like that is what is going to happen. The reality is that from what the captain said to what ended up happening took a lot longer and was a lot more difficult than any of us had anticipated. The hard part, of course, is being patient in the tension in the in-between time. And during the Advent season, the church is invited into the tension of waiting with patience. We recognize that Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, has come. And that is a fact. The first Advent is a historical event that happened around the year 6 BC. But we also acknowledge that this same Jesus, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, has declared that he'll one day come and make all things new, a second advent. And it's the tension between the ups and the downs, the joys and the sorrows, the loves and the losses. That's where we inhabit. That's where we live right now. And in theory, and even in reality, we have a sure promise. The God of all power and faithfulness, the God who is literally known, like his reputation throughout all scripture is known as the covenant-keeping God, like the God who keeps his promises. That same God has promised to bring his kingdom and fullness, to wipe away every tear, and to dwell with his people. But the journey from promise to fulfillment is full of peril, isn't it? 
and it's confusing. And like my seagoing journey from San Diego to Seattle, it's full of unexpected storms and detours. It's full of surprising joy and surprising beauty and everything in between. And it is therefore easy for us to lose perspective, to lose hope, and to lose our way. And so this Advent, we are turning to the writings of the early apostles. These anointed followers of Jesus were trying to encourage and lead the young church just a few generations removed from Jesus' resurrection. And in their writings, we receive instruction and encouragement, correction and insight on how to follow Jesus in between these two Advents. Last week, we were rooted in Paul's letter to Timothy, and he reminded us of the importance of developing a heart of thankfulness to God for all of his good gifts to us. And this evening, we're going to look at one of Peter's letters in which he encourages us to have godly patience. If you're able, would you stand as we read 2 Peter 3, 1 through 15. This is now, my beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this position, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world is at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly people. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day with the Lord. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be discovered or laid bare. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in the holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening for the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Lord, we thank you for um, your servant, Peter, who's striving to teach the early church, and therefore us, what's important to remember for helping us find our way in a sea of um, of confusion between the Advents, Lord. 
I pray that you would help us through the power of your spirit, not only to understand what was written, but to understand what you are saying to us in this moment in time. Amen. You may be seated. We don't know for certain, but many scholars believe Peter was writing this letter to a group of churches in Asia Minor, likely included people like the Galatians and Cappadocians and others in what is in present-day Turkey. We know they were familiar, this group of people, they were familiar with the teachings and writings of Paul already, and some of these churches may have even been planted by Paul himself. And from the controversy that Peter seems to be addressing, his audience is likely made up of Gentile converts to Christianity. That is, these people are more influenced by Greco-Roman culture than the Christians, say, in Jerusalem or in Antioch, Syria, who are more influenced by ancient Near Eastern culture. The churches Peter was writing to were struggling with their faith. Anyone relate to that? Like Jesus hadn't returned yet. And they're beginning to wonder, did we kind of misunderstand him? Did we miss out? Like maybe he showed up and we didn't know it. Or maybe we simply don't have faith anymore. And so Peter wisely advises them to first of all remember, to remember the words of the prophets and the commandments of the Lord and the teachings of the apostles. Remember those solid things. When we get impatient and lose our way, the scriptures, particularly the prophets and the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the apostles, they help us to see the big picture and they give us instructions about what we are supposed to be about in our lives. The scriptures help place us in the overarching story of God's redemption. We realize like we're small parts of something massive. We're participants in God's story. And since Jesus is the author of that story, we can trust, we can be patient that it will end well. And that through faith, we will end well. The scriptures also give us this personal perspective. I know that like with the climate crisis and geopolitical tensions and polarized politics, more and more people that I encounter are walking with just like chronic, like ambient fear and anxiety. And psychologists tell us flat out that pretty much across the board that one of the ways that you can help with that anxiety is to not try and save the whole world, but trying to do a few things at a time that are tangible and right in front of you and within your own power. And the same is true with following Jesus. When it feels like the world is out of control, we can be anxious and fearful and impatient with God and impatient with God's timeline. Like, what are you doing Why aren't you intervening more? Why don't things work right? But if we heed Peter's advice and regularly consult the scriptures, we'll see that Jesus isn't calling us to save the world. That's like literally his job, not our job. But we're called to participate in tangible ways, like loving our neighbors as ourselves and and truth-telling and generosity and practicing works of service and building community through investing in our relationships. So just as in the first two verses, Peter gives us great advice about how to live between the advents with patience, 
Remember what God has already said through the prophets and through Jesus and through the apostles. But Peter is now writing to address a more specific problem in the early church. Apparently, there were some false teachers who were claiming that they themselves were followers of Jesus. And they were telling people, hey, ever since the beginning of time, the world is the same as it ever was. God isn't intervening. He isn't going to bring judgment. So do whatever you want. Live it up. God clearly doesn't care. And Peter references these teachers as mockers and scoffers. They're clearly not influenced by the prophets or Jesus or the apostles, but by Greco-Roman type paganism. Because in Greco-Roman thought, time is cyclical. It goes around and around and around the same old stuff over and over again. Our existence is on a cosmic repeat cycle, according to Greco-Roman thought. Uh, The details and the names and the faces, they all change, but history just spins around. New generations of people fill predetermined roles in history, and around and around and around we go. Christianity and Judaism, however, see time as linear, that time is going somewhere, that time as we know it had a beginning and will have a crescendo. And the false teachers that Peter was writing against taught that God never interacted with his creation. But you can only maintain that position if you don't actually read the Bible or read history. So Peter just takes him to the scripture and he says, remember creation? That thing that started all this? Um, When God took the waters of chaos and made the heavens of the earth, like, He intervened. And do you think God doesn't care about the problem of evil? Do you remember in Genesis 6 when he sent a flood to cleanse the world of evil? And in the flood, the waters of chaos were set loose on the earth again. And then he tamed them once again. And there was a dove that Noah released and it's hovering over the waters like new creation happening all over again. And we could look at God's judgment, say, of Sodom and Gomorrah or sending Israel into captivity. But where we ought to look ultimately is to the cross. Do you think God doesn't care about our hearts or our ethics or how we treat other people? Then why go to all the trouble and the suffering of becoming flesh and dying on the cross to take the consequences of my sin and yours? Peter is saying, don't listen to these false teachers who claim there's no judgment. Don't let the illusion of a delay convince you that it's never going to happen. Remember, the psalmist says that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not forgetful. He's not uncaring. He's not checked out. He's patient. His ways are not our ways. His timeline is not our, lo- our timeline. But be certain of this, he's coming. And judgment is coming with him. What an Advent sermon. Like, what did you guys, <laughs> you came here for this? Like, what is this? Fire and brimstone as we prepare to, prepare to celebrate uh, the birth of, of teeny tiny baby Jesus. Well, who do you think that, that teeny tiny baby Jesus is? 
He's the, the God of the universe. Like, baby Yoda might be cute, but he can, like, lift heavy stuff. He's, anyway, sorry if you haven't seen that yet. See, part of, our, part of our problem as 21st century Western people when we think about judgment is we hear the word judgment, and I do this all the time, and I automatically think the worst. I automatically think the worst. You have to remember that for most of Israel's people, or most of Israel's history, the people of God looked forward to judgment. They wrote about it in endearing terms. And C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the Psalms, is really helpful here. He suggests that most of us think of judgment as a courtroom and a criminal case, and we put ourselves and our imaginings in the dock. Like, we are on trial for our sins. And we assume that it's all about God bringing down the law on our heads. That's kind of where my mind jumps when I hear the word judgment. But Lewis says that for the Israelites, particularly the psalmists, they saw judgment as a municipal court, like a civil court. And they were the plaintiff. Judgment in Jewish and Christian thought is largely to do with justice. And it's about God coming to make all things right. With Jesus returning to advocate for the poor and the powerless who are the plaintiff in a civil court, right? For Jesus to come and advocate and to judge the oppressor, but to lift up the oppressed and the humble. To lift up the faithful and to bring low the oppressor. And in that sense, following the mockers and the scoffers that Peter's writing about, that will put us on the receiving end of judgment rather than in the flow of God's new kingdom. Peter encourages us to be steadfast and to seek the way of Jesus, just like John the Baptist did. Thank you, uh, Jeremy, for reading that. uh, When he's preparing the way for the Lord. When you feel lost, it's always a good idea to look at the map. And that helps you know where you are and where you're going. But when you're discouraged, it's always good to think of not only where you are and where you're going. When you're discouraged, it's important to remember the quality of the place to where you're going. I might be far from home and see my house on a map, and that tells me where I am and where I'm going. But when I'm discouraged, all I need to do is think of the smiling faces in that house. And the smells of good food that I know are there. And puppy licks that will greet me at the door. See, see the quality difference there. Peter, in his own words, reminds the church of the things that Jesus said in his own teachings. Three things in particular will happen on the day of the Lord, which is technical language from the prophets. The day of the Lord is the day that Jesus brings his kingdom in full. First, it says the heavens will pass away with a roar. I don't know if that's a Katy Perry song or just a loud noise. I don't know what that, what that is all about. Uh, this language is drawing heavily on the prophets, particularly Isaiah 34, 65, and 66, among others. It's also mirrored in the book of Revelation and some of Jesus' own teachings, Matthew 24, and like texts. Taken in context of the prophets and the rest of this verse, It's clearly 
clearly symbolic language signaling the dawn of a new age or in, in the new kingdom that is coming in biblical imagery. It's not like heaven is a place that gets wiped away as if, you know, it's like on a table, like heaven's on a table, and then a cosmic cat comes over and knocks it off the table. It's not like, that's not what it's talking about. It's, it's rather the realm of the spirit and the spiritual forces will be brought under God's judgment just the same as people and the physical world will. Evil will be dealt with in the heavenly realm. Second, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. What are these elements Peter is referring to? to? Well, the Stoics thought that there were, you know, the main elements were earth and water, air and fire. But it's doubtful that Peter is going to be referencing Stoic imagery when he's just referenced biblical imagery and has told the church to go to scripture for its guide, not Stoics, okay? Uh, So I think the clue is found in the third event on the day of the Lord, and that is that the earth and its works, that would would be the things that we do, will be revealed or will be discovered. Some later manuscripts and the the NIV, I believe, have that the earth and its works will be burned up. But older manuscripts clearly carry the sense of something being uh, laid bare, or discovered, or brought out into the open. And here's the idea. A refiner's fire. The refiner takes ore, like caked from the earth. It's got rocks and earth. And and the refiner puts that hunk of impure stuff into an intense heat situation. And the pure metal comes out of the, the earth and the rock and the junk. And what you have left is the pure product. The metaphor is that of God revealing the works and the hearts of all creatures, spiritual beings, physical beings, things that are seen, things that are unseen, all of it tested by the metaphorical fire of God's intense truth and his intense nature. And the goal of all of this is to bring the new heavens and the new earth to bear, the kingdom of God. The teaching of the whole council of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation suggests not the destruction of planet earth, but its renewal, the same earth. Now, certainly in the new kingdom, there will be some significant differences, and I'm, for one, really looking forward to some of these, like resurrection bodies, that don't wear out and break down and work properly in a new heart that is in line with God's will, I cannot wait. But we should also expect, with all of these newnesses, lots of continuity. That all things that are good and established now in love between the advents, the things that you do with extra care and craftsmanship and love and compassion, those things will somehow be not only preserved, but possibly enhanced in the new kingdom. And that means what you do now actually matters. Because if we screw up the end game and the worldview where, hey, all this is going to burn anyway and nothing matters, then it really doesn't matter what you do now and what you invest in. And I think that's a horrible way to exist between the advents. I think it's completely full of hope and part of the gospel that what we do matters. 
And Peter wants his struggling church, church to know that God is not absent, that he's patient. He wants to remind us of what we're waiting for, this new creation. For Jesus to return in glory, for him to put a final stop to evil and injustice so that shalom, his all-encompassing peace, will be a reality for everyone. Now, this type of Christian patience doesn't imply that we're just like to sit back and suck up all the hard things that we endure, uh, that we go through, and just, just kind of wait in cruise control. The call of Jesus and the apostles has always been for the church to live as though the kingdom were already here. Like we're supposed to be, as N.T. Wright puts it, signposts of the kingdom. So because we're to live with this great hope of what's going to come, we start acting audaciously like, a, like we're in a little slice of it right now. That we should be more generous in the world, not fearing uh, a lack of abundance, but, but, but trusting in God's gracious generosity. That, that we might be willing to let the world get over on us a little bit because we know that that's not the end game. That we might be more forgiving because we're free to do so, knowing that God will make all things right and new. We're to be patient with one another and our neighbors. We're to work for justice and shalom in our lives and our spheres of influence and in our communities. The followers of Jesus are to be patient and to push back faithfully against the evils of the world, to speak up for justice, whether that's personal justice and how I interact with my family or my neighbors, or, or it's, it's civic justice and how we, how we engage in politics and in policy. Peter's good news to us is that we don't need to be anxious and despair, that the salvation of the world is not up to you and it's not up to me. But as people who have tasted the grace of Jesus, we're invited, invited to seek the peace of the people that we get to influence and share this space with. That's what I thought the passage was about when I looked at it in May when I was kind of planning out what my Advent series was going to be. I thought that would be a pretty good sermon. But I've come to discover that the main point of the passage is something much more. Um, it's actually something better. It's not, I'm reminded, a passage that's written to the mockers and the scoffers. It's not a passage written to literally explain the timeline of the coming kingdom or to scientifically describe how the day of the Lord will come. It is, at its core, good news about the character of God himself. God is not impotent, as the mockers proclaim. And no, God is not lazy and slow to bring about his plan as the scoffers claim. God is patient. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And in verse 15a, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. If you 
are a follower of Jesus right now. Consider how the patience of the Lord has been a benefit to you. How he waited for you before the end of time as you know it. How he has been long-suffering with you, allowing you time to place your faith in Jesus that you might receive new life and be an heir of new creation. As we live in this tension between the advents of Jesus' incarnation and his reappearance in glory, how might we come to rejoice in the kindness of God and his patience rather than despair over the state of the world? How might we work in the power of the Spirit to alleviate as much suffering, as much injustice, as much pain as we can between the advents so that more people might come to know the Lord? And consider this, for those of us who have friends and neighbors and loved ones, people that you might in your heart of hearts say, they're far from God. And I really can't imagine a scenario in where they come to know the Lord. Be encouraged. This passage tells us that God desires them to be rescued. That God is purposefully patient in his final dealings, because he desires that none should perish. So take heart. Don't give up praying. Don't grow frustrated and pessimistic. The Lord is on the move. Amen? Amen. Finally, for those who are hearing this message and have not yet responded to faith in Jesus, I urge you, don't make the same mistake as Peter's false teachers. Don't mistake the patience of God for, for impotence or ignorance or laziness. He sees you, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he's calling you home. His patience is salvation for those who respond in faith. So how? How will we respond to him? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I I just got to say thank you personally for taking one of the weirdest books in the Bible and a a difficult passage in revealing good news to me and to us. Thank you for uh, revealing and making clear the patience and loving kindness of Jesus. And I pray wherever each of us is at on the the spectrum of faith, whether it is... um, been a long journey with Jesus already or whether it is uh, something still to come, Lord, I I pray that you would release faith in, in you for us, that you would help us to trust you, that you would help us to respond to your kindness, to your patience, to your invitation. I thank you that you don't strong arm us into, uh, to belief, that you don't reject us the minute we reject you, that you are literally long-suffering and patient with us. And I thank you for these important words from your Apostle Peter. We might have implied them by things that you've done in the Scriptures. We might have implied them from other teachings, but it says explicitly that you are patient because you desire none of us to perish. And I thank you for those words. 
something to hang our faith in and our trust in. Amen.